Good morning and welcome. Good morning and welcome to everyone here at Carney E-Free. My name is Jordan. I get to work with middle school and high school students here at E-Free, and I also get to help with the venue. So hello to everyone over in the venue. Um, we're so glad that you guys could all be with us here this morning. If you're a guest with us this morning, we're so excited that you're here. I hope that you find our church to be welcoming and inviting, and people are kind and friendly towards you here. That's our goal here at E-Free. And so as Sarah just said, we are continuing our series um, in the book of Galatians um, called Off the Hook. And so as we begin, I want to talk to you a little bit about a guy named Peter. And so Peter is one of the disciples, and Peter saw some amazing, incredible things. So Peter walked with Jesus um, when Jesus was here on earth. And so there was moments where he would walk up to blind people, people that had never seen family or friends. And then Jesus begins to have a conversation with these people. And at some point during this conversation, the people begin to see. And they walk away being able to see colors and shapes and the faces of their family members. And there's other people that are paralyzed. And Jesus walks up to these people. And as he's talking to them, at some point during the conversation, the person stands up, they pick up their mat, and they walk away from, this conversation, from the conversation. But it gets even more amazing than that. Because Jesus would raise dead people. And so there's a moment where Jesus has a friend named Lazarus. And Lazarus is dead, and they buried him, and he's been in a tomb for four days. And Jesus shows up at the tomb with Peter and the other disciples, and he tells them, I want you to roll away the tomb, or roll away the stone. And they begin to argue with Jesus. This is a bad idea, but Jesus wins the argument. And Jesus shouts into the tomb. He says, Lazarus, come out. And Peter watches as Lazarus stumbles out of this tomb. And then at some point, Peter recognizes that Jesus is just not some ordinary human being or not even an extraordinary human being, but he is God's son in human form come to live with us. And he, he tells Jesus that. He says, you are the son of God. And then shortly after that, Peter goes up on this mountain with Jesus. And while he's on the mountain, Jesus is transformed. And Peter sees that Jesus truly is the son of God. And then Moses and Elijah, they show up with Jesus and they're talking on this mountain. And Peter sees all this. And then we get to some things that we're not quite sure if Peter saw it, but he definitely had really good firsthand accounts. So Jesus' crucifixion. If he didn't see it himself, he would have heard how they drove nails through Jesus' hands and his feet. How they tore the skin off of his back. How they forced a crown of thorns onto his head. And how they lifted him up on a cross to suffocate and die. And then if he didn't see, he at least heard how they took him down and they buried him in a tomb. And then on Sunday, Peter went to that same tomb and he found it empty. And he walked back home wondering what this all could mean. And then later, Jesus appears in the upper, upper room to Peter and the other disciples. And Peter would have seen the nail-scarred hands and feet. And then Jesus lives with Peter for a time and the other disciples, and then he ascends. He goes up into heaven and disappears into the clouds, and Peter sees all of this. And then Peter gets to be the leader of the early church. And one night as he's sitting on this rooftop, he has this vision. And in this vision, God lowers a blanket down. And on this blanket, there's all these animals that the Jewish nation of Israel was denied from eating. They never were supposed to eat any of these animals. Included in there is pigs. So he's never had bacon. And God says to him, he says, kill and eat. I want you to eat some of these animals. And Peter says, no, 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 God. 
Like I, I, in my entire life, I have never ever allowed unclean food, the food that's been denied me by the Old Testament, I've never eaten those foods. And God says to him, do not call something that I have declared clean, unclean. I want you to eat this. So Peter eats. I don't know what he ate, but I would be eating the bacon. So he, he eats. And then right after this, there's a knock on the door of the house he's at. And there's these three guys who are Gentiles, which means they're not part of the Jewish nation of Israel. They're part of the other peoples of the earth. And they say to Peter, they say, we, have, we work for a guy named Cornelius. And Cornelius is a God-fearing man who's been pursuing God. And God has sent us to you because you are going to tell Cornelius how he can become a Christ follower. And so Peter goes with these guys to Cornelius' house. He shares the gospel with them. And at the end of sharing the gospel, they believe the Holy Spirit comes down into their life. And Peter is amazed that not just the Jewish nation of Israel can become followers of Jesus, but also the Gentiles can. And so what Peter realizes in this moment is there's no longer two people groups. There's no longer Jew and Gentile, but now there is only one family of faith. And so Peter has seen all these different things, and he's experienced all these different things, but even though he's seen all of that, and he's experienced that, he still has the same struggles that you and I have, even though we haven't experienced what he's experienced or seen what he's seen. And so I want to pray, and then I'm going to tell you what that struggle is. So let me pray. Father God, God, I thank you so much for this opportunity today to open up your word. And God, I pray and I ask that you would use Galatians in our hearts and our lives, God, that you would begin to shape and mold us to look more like your son, Jesus. God, that you would help us, that we are your people in need of help here this morning. So would you please use your words to help us and make us more like Jesus. God, would you please help me? Would you help me to be clear and concise and to be faithful to your text, God. God, I thank you for your son. We thank you for the Holy Spirit. And we pray and ask that the Holy Spirit work in our hearts over the next few minutes as we dig into Galatians. We pray this all in your son's name. Amen. So if you have your Bible with you or, or your smartphone device, you can open to Galatians. So Galatians is in the New Testament, so it's towards the back of the Bible. Um, it comes right after 2 Corinthians. So if you find Corinthians, just go a little bit further, and you'll find Galatians. We're looking for chapter 2, verse 11 is where we're going to start today. If you landed in Ephesians or Philippians or Colossians, you went too far, go back to the thicker part of the Bible, you'll find Galatians. So what you need to know is that for some reason, I don't know why, but for some reason, Paul calls Peter Cephas. He refuses to call him Peter, he calls him Cephas. I don't know if this is like a nickname for him or what the reason is, but he calls him Cephas instead of Peter. So when we read these verses, whenever it says Cephas, think Peter. So verse 11 says, When Cephas, Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. So Paul opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. Okay, so let's unpack this. So Paul is in Antioch, and Peter shows up in Antioch as well. So Antioch is a city. And when he gets there, Paul confronts Peter, and he confronts him because, because Peter used to eat with the Gentiles. So he used to eat what they were eating, and he used to eat with them because of the two things that God had shown him earlier in the book of Acts. 
that he could eat whatever he wanted, that God had released him from those Old Testament commands about what they could or couldn't eat. And he had created one new people group that it was no longer Jew or Gentile, but it was just if you believe and trust in Jesus, you are brothers and sisters in Christ. And so he was supposed to live out of that um, reality. But instead, this other group of Jewish Christians had arrived who were still following the Old Testament laws, and they saw what Peter was doing, and they began to peer pressure Peter. They began to say, Peter, well, if, if you're really going to be a good Christian, you also have to be a good Jew. You also can't, can't, you have to follow these Old Testament rules. You can't eat with those people. You can't eat what they're eating. And begin to pressure Peter. And Peter, instead of standing up for the truth of the gospel, instead of standing up and saying, no, God has transformed and changed us. These are our brothers and sisters in Christ. Instead, he began to give, give into it. He began to walk further and further away and disassociate himself from the Gentiles. And in doing this, because he is one of the early church leaders, he's one of the pillars of the early church, the other Jewish Christians that were with him began to do it also. And it got to the point that even Barnabas, who was a co-worker of Paul's for the gospel, he follows them as well and he forgets the gospel. And he begins to separate himself from the Gentiles. And so Paul confronts him. In verse 14, it says, When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, so they were not living out of the gospel that says we are all brothers and sisters in Christ, he said, I said to Cephas in front of them all, I said to Peter in front of everybody, so in front of these two groups, so you have over here you have the Jews, and over here you have the Gentiles, and Paul is standing between them, and he's face to face with Peter, and he says, Peter, you are in the wrong. He says, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? So he's saying, Peter, Peter, you, you are part of this group by birth over here. You were born into the nation of Israel. That you were born with all the commands, all the promises, all the rules that God had handed down to Moses and asked him to enforce and to teach the people of God. So you, you're not part of this other group over here who did not have the benefit of knowing God that way. You did not have the benefit of the sacrificial system, did not have the benefit of knowing the laws and commands and rules. He said, up to this point, Peter, you've been living like them because you've been freed from all these laws and commands because of what Jesus Christ has done for you. But now, because these other Jewish people have stepped in, even though you're Jewish, you continue to act like a Gentile, and then you go to the Gentiles, you don't have any of the promises, they don't have any of the commands, and you're saying, you guys need to start acting like the Jews. He says, it doesn't make any sense that you're Jewish by birth and you don't act like a Jewish person, and they're not Jewish by birth, and you're pressuring them to also act like an Israelite. He says, this doesn't make any sense, Peter. You've lost your way, you've forgotten the gospel. And here is what we find from these verses is the first principle this morning. Is that each one of us, every single one of us in this room, me included, is at risk of unintentionally trying to add to the gospel. That we are at risk of unintentionally trying to add things on and tack things on to the gospel of Jesus Christ that says, through faith alone you are saved. So let's describe what the gospel is. If you have your Bibles or smartphone devices, just flip back a page to Galatians 1. Because Paul, he's greeting the church in Galatia. He's greeting the Galatians, and he gives them this greeting slash prayer. 
And in this, he unpacks the gospel in this incredible way. So in verse 3, he says, Grace and peace to you from our God, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So as he greets them, he's reminding them that you were saved through faith in Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ became human and he lived among us and he gave himself up on the cross. That it was the cross where Jesus was executed, where he was crucified, that the wrath of God was poured out onto him, where he paid for all the condemnation, all the judgment for all of the people who would put their trust and faith in him. So on the cross, what happens is we come with our guilt and our shame and our judgment and condemnation, and we give all of that to Jesus. And then what Jesus does is he gives us all of his righteousness, that he makes us righteous, that he makes us right with God, and then he gives us his inheritance, eternal life, that we receive all this, this exchange occurs on the cross. And this is the gospel. That this, we have this other language that we've been using throughout this series, and it's this, that the gospel is the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, which freely pardons sinners and exclaims, you are welcome into God's love and presence. And so every single person in this room, every single person in our city, every single person in the world is invited into God's love and presence if they put their trust and faith in Jesus Christ. And so this is the gospel. This is what Peter was supposed to be spreading. This is what Peter was supposed to be living out and he had lost it, and he had begun to add other things on to the gospel. And so here is what the Jewish um, community was adding on to the gospel. They were saying, well, you've got to believe in Jesus, but you also have to avoid eating with non-Jewish people. Well, you have to believe in Jesus, but you also, you can't eat what the Old Testament tells you you can't eat. You can only eat the approved foods. And that sounds funny to us. It sounds funny, those two things, because after middle school or high school, you don't care who you eat with anymore. It's like, that's a middle school, high school thing, and then after that, it's like, I don't care who eats at whose table. It's not a big deal. And we've been eating bacon for a long time, so unless you're on some sort of diet, then you eat pretty much what you want to eat. There's not like a, God told me I couldn't eat this food. But we have the tendency to do this in our society. We have this tendency to put things on people and say, well, if you really are going to be saved, you've got to believe in Jesus and you have to do something else. And so some of, some of us grew up in communities where that happened. But some of us, we have this internal legalism. So I have internal legalism. So I have this voice, it's not audible, so don't worry, um, that tells me that I'm not good enough. That when I believe in Jesus, it's not enough. That really what I need is I need to read my Bible every single day if I'm going to be a good Christian. If I'm truly going to be saved. That Jesus isn't enough. It's, it's believing in Jesus and reading my Bible every day. Or it's believing in Jesus and praying for an hour each day. Or it's believing in Jesus and not watching R-rated movies. Or it's believing in Jesus and supporting three to ten compassion kids. Or it's believing in Jesus and voting for this or that political party. That if I believe in Jesus and do blank, then I will be saved. That is legalism of adding something onto the gospel that Jesus Christ did not put there. And so we have to guard against this. 
Because we will unintentionally add on to things and tell other people that they have to do something in order to be saved that Jesus Christ has not commanded them to do. And so I have to fight against the voice inside of me that says, well, Jordan, if you were really going to be a good Christian, if you really were going to be saved, you'd pray a lot more than you do. You'd be a lot more generous than you do, than you are. You would sponsor more compassion kids than you do. So I have to fight against that. And so here is how Paul fights against this as he continues to argue with Peter. So here's what I want you to know, that there is, if you flip back to Galatians 2, verse 15, there is not a consensus in Bible scholars on whether Paul is now talking to Peter or whether he's talking to the Galatian church. So some people think he's continuing to talk to Peter, and some people think that he's stepped back and he's making a commentary to the Galatian church. But it doesn't really matter, because if he's talking to Peter, it applies to the Galatians and it applies to us. But if he's talking to the Galatians, it applies to Peter and it applies to us. So whoever he's talking to, it's going to apply to us as well. But I believe that he's still talking to Peter, so I'm going to go forward with that in mind. So in verse 15, he says, We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ Jesus and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. So here's what he says to Peter. He says, Peter, you and I, we, we were born into the nation of Israel. We were born in this nation that had all the promises, that had the sacrificial system, that had a high priest who would talk to God on our behalf. We were born into that system. But it was not a benefit for us in being saved because we know that even the Gentiles who were born outside of all of that, who they're born into the society where they didn't know who God was, they didn't know what God wanted, they didn't know how to talk to God, they had all of that, and yet both of us are saved through faith. We are saved through faith in Jesus Christ. He says, to the point so that you, Peter, and I, Paul, we too put our faith in Jesus Christ. That is how we are going to be saved, is through our faith and our trust in Jesus. Because he says, no one is going to be saved by works of the law. He says, no one's going to be justified. And when we talk about justified, we mean being made right with God. He's saying, no one, not a single person, is ever going to be justified by works of the law, by keeping the Old Testament Torah or the Old Testament law. And this is important. And this is super controversial in Paul's time, and it's super controversial in our time. It was controversial in Paul's time because there was a group of Jewish people called Pharisees. And the Pharisees were absolutely convinced that they were justified by works of the law. That all throughout the Gospels, they fight with Jesus. And the reason they fight with Jesus is because Jesus comes and he says, you need to trust and believe in me if you're going to be saved. And they say, oh, no, no. We are awesome. We don't need your help, Jesus. We are fantastic and great, and we keep all the commands, and we do everything that God tells us to do. We're fantastic. And they look at external behavior, and they never look at their heart, to the point where Jesus calls them whitewashed tombs, because he says, outwardly, you guys are amazing, but inwardly, you guys are dead. And so Paul can say to them, he can say, there is nobody in my audience, there is nobody in the Jewish nation of Israel who's going to be justified because they kept the Old Testament law which is why it was so controversial for his audience. But here's why it's so controversial for our audience. 
is because people still think that they can be saved by being a good person. They still think that they can be made right or they can be acceptable to God because they're a good person. And so let me tell you the primary reason why that will never work. So over here, you have God's system of salvation. And in God's system of salvation, he says, I'm sending my son into the world, that he's going to live a perfect life. He's going to live on earth with you. He's going to experience humanity. And then what I want him to do is I want him to go to a cross and he's going to be crucified so that my wrath can be poured out on him so you can be rescued and saved when you put your trust and your faith in him. That if you put your trust and your faith in him, you can be made right. And it's through trusting and believing in him that you're saved. So that's God's system of salvation. But then over here, we have what I am going to call salvation by good deeds or salvation by works. It's the idea that either I'm just a good person or I can earn my way into heaven. And the idea is that I'm going to be saved by doing blank. And throughout my experience with people, it changes. So some people, it's I'm going to be saved by being the perfect parent. Or I'm going to be saved by attending church regularly or never missing church. Or I'm going to be saved by voting for this or that political party. Or I'm going to be saved by accepting other people and being tolerant and never judging anybody. Or I'm going to be saved because I served in the military. Or I'm going to be saved because I'm a nice person or I'm generous or because I do this or that. Well, here's the problem. At the bottom, at the foundation of this system is the idea that I am looking at God and I'm saying, God, you're wrong. That God is over here and he's saying the only way that you can be saved is through trusting and believing in Jesus. And over here, anyone who's doing this is saying, no, God, I don't need your help. I can do it by attending church. No, God, I can do it by giving to this organization or that organization or volunteering this many hours. And so this is never going to work because that foundation is the foundation of all sin. Every time we do something that is contrary to what God wants, contrary and hurts other people, what we basically say is, God, I think that you're dumb and I'm smart and I know what I'm going to do. So how is that system ever going to justify us when we look at the creator of the universe and say, you're wrong and I'm right? So this is the problem with this system. Now let me tell you how this works out in your house. So if you have kids, my guess is at some point this happened to you. So you walk into your son or daughter's room, and you look around the room, and it's a mess. You're like, what happened in here? Like, this is ridiculous. Like, I didn't even know you had this much stuff. And so you go, hey, come in here. And they come in, and you go, what happened? They go, oh, you know, it was my brother's fault or my sister's fault. It's never my fault. And you go, well, I want you to pick it up. I want you to clean it up. So as a parent, would you be full of joy and gratitude if your son or daughter looked at you and said, no mom, no dad, forget you, I'm going to go mow the lawn. And they went out and they mowed the lawn. Like my guess at my house, my son is not old enough to mow the lawn, but when he tells me no, there's not joy and gratitude in my heart. Even though he's doing something good or nice, he's not doing what I asked him to do. And so at the bottom of his behavior is disobedience. And here's the problem. Here's the thing that makes this so appealing and so terrifying is that these things over here, they really are good things. They're not bad things. It's not a bad thing to be generous. It's not a bad thing to attend church regularly. It's not a bad thing to do all those things. But they are insufficient to save. 
When you look at the creator of the universe and say, I can do what I want. I'll get to heaven however I want to. Don't tell me how to live my life. And so this is the problem. And this is why Paul can say, there is no one who will be justified through this system. There is no one in this room, there is no one in our city, there is no one in our state or our country or our world who will ever be justified through this system. Because at the bottom of this system is saying, God, you're dumb and I'm smart. Which is never going to earn God's approval. And so what we see through this next section and what Paul is writing is that salvation, it only comes through faith in Jesus Christ. That it only comes through faith. That there is no other way to be saved other than putting your trust and your faith in Jesus Christ. That if you trust in anything else, it is going to let you down and you will never be justified. You will never be made right with God. And I'm not saying this to you because I want to crush you or I want to hurt you. I'm saying this because I want to rescue you. That you're going to be crushed when you get to heaven and you hold up your resume and you say, let me in because of all these things. And he says, that is insufficient to let you in. And he casts you away. That you will be crushed when you see all these people that like the Pharisees looked at and they said, why are you hanging out with these prostitutes? Why are you hanging out with these sinners? And he says, because they asked for my help. Because they were humble. And where are you going to be outside the gate holding up your resume saying, I should be good enough to be let in. And you say, you missed it. So I'm not trying to crush you. I'm trying to help you get in. Galatians 2, 17 through 21. Paul continues to build his, his case. Because um, throughout uh, my experience, um, when people hear about salvation through faith, when they were like, all I have to do is believe in Jesus, all I have to do is ask him for forgiveness, they go, well, then why would I just not live however I want? Or how is it fair that that guy gets to live however he wants, and then as he's dying, he asks for God to rescue him, and he saves him? How is that fair? Or how does that work out? Or why shouldn't I just live however I want, and at the end, I can ask God to rescue me, and then he'll just step in and help? So Paul's going to answer that question. In Galatians 2, 17 through 21, he says... But if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. And so we'll pause there. So what Paul is saying, he's saying people are arguing it with him, that he's saying if you're saved by salvation through faith, and Jewish people or anybody else is using this as an excuse to sin, to say, oh, I can do whatever I want with my life, or I can live however I want, and then God's going to forgive me. Doesn't that mean that God promotes sin? Doesn't mean that he's approving, he's letting people use this system to sin? And Paul says, absolutely not. He says that salvation through faith is not a get-out-of-jail-free card for you to do whatever you want with, and at the end, you can just hold it up and say, let me out. But instead, it transforms and changes us. And then he says, on top of that, I'm not going to add the Old Testament law back on to faith. He says, what you want me to do is you want me to rebuild the system I just tore down. So I just spent my life trying, I just spent the last few years of my life trying to help people see that the Old Testament law system is never going to justify people. And now you're saying, well, you need to tell them that it's faith in Jesus plus it's this thing or that thing. It's circumcision, or it's not eating with Gentiles, or it's not eating this food or that food. He says, that's the Old Testament law system. He says, if I do that, I'm just rebuilding what I tore down, and then I really would be a lawbreaker. 
It's not going to go very well for me if I tell everybody not to follow these rules, and then an hour later I turn around and say, wait a minute, I actually need to follow those rules. It's not going to be good for me. He says, that's not what I'm here to do. I refuse to do that because that is not the gospel. So then he begins to tell his story in verse 19. He says, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. So if you know Paul, Paul is born into the nation of Israel, and he's born into this tribe that's like the best tribe, and he's been pursuing being a Pharisee all of his life, and he begins to even, he begins to even try and crush the early church. And he's on this road to Damascus, and now he's, as he's on this road, Jesus shows up, and he says, no more. No more, Paul. I'm going to take you and use you for my, for my purposes, that I'm going to make you into a new man. And so what Paul is saying, he's saying, I spent my entire life up until that moment when Jesus showed up, I spent my entire life trying to be the greatest Pharisee of all time, that I lived for the law, that my life was spent and poured out in pursuit of keeping the law. But he says, then, then this moment came where I met Jesus, and then I died to the law. That I said, that law is dead to me. It is no longer what I'm going to follow. It's no longer what I'm going to uphold because now I'm going to live for God. That I can't live for the law and for God. I have to live for God. And then he explains this in more detail. He says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. So he said, the Paul that you see before you now, the Paul that you see is not the same Paul before Jesus showed up. But there was a Paul before Jesus showed up, and that Paul called all the shots. That Paul decided what was best for him, what was best in his life. He decided how he was going to be saved, how he was going to be rescued, how he was going to be made right with God. He says that Paul died. That Paul was crucified with Jesus on the cross, and now my life is Christ's. It is no longer my own, but it is Christ's who lives in me by the power of the Holy Spirit. He says, now my life is spent for God. It is spent in pursuit of God and living out how God wants me to live. It is given to what God wants. So now I act and I think and I do everything I can to the best of my ability the way God wants it because my life isn't mine anymore, it's his. And so this should be our attitude as Christians. It should be that my life was purchased by Jesus Christ on the cross, and so now my life is his, which doesn't have to mean you go into ministry, but it means that you spend your life pursuing what it is God wants in your area of life. That how is it that God wants you to be a parent? How is it that God wants you to be a brother or sister or a son or daughter, a coworker? What is it that God wants me to do because I'm gonna pour my life out for him? And he says, the life I now live in the body, the, life, the Paul that you see before you, the rest of the days and the hours and the minutes and the seconds I have left here on earth, he says, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He says, the rest of my life, however many days or minutes or seconds I have, it's all God's. And I'm going to live it by faith through his power inside of me by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then his motivation is clear. He says, my motivation is because Jesus Christ loved me and he gave himself up for me. That he doesn't do it so God will accept him. He doesn't do it so God will approve him. He says, I already have my approval because Christ laid his life down for me. Christ accepted me. He loved me. 
And he loved me enough that he was willing to die for me. And so that is why I obey. That is why I pursue Jesus. That's why I try to become more like him, not because I want him to accept me, but because I'm already accepted, I'm already loved. And then, in verse 21, he nails his final nail in the coffin of salvation by good works. He says, I do not set aside the grace of God. He says, I refuse to give up salvation by faith. For if righteousness, for if justification, for if salvation could be gained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. So he's saying, there was no reason for Christ to die if you truly could be saved by being a nice person. If you could be saved by being a good person. He's saying, there's no reason for Jesus to come. Because you could hold up your resume and say, hey, let me in. And he'd be like, oh yeah, come on in, you're awesome. But he says, there is no other way. So what you have to realize is if you're going to continue to stand here and say, well, I'm good enough that God's going to let me in, then what you're saying is then the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus is praying and he is begging and he is pleading his heavenly Father, and he says, if there is any other way that this cup can pass from me, if there's any other way that, I can be sa- that these people can be saved apart from me being crucified, can we do that? That what you're saying is that God the Father looked at Jesus and he said, well, there is this other way. We could just ask people to be nice. And if we ask them to be nice, we could let them in too. But, you know, I think I'm going to crucify you anyway. That is what you are saying. If you're saying, I don't need Jesus, I can make it into heaven on my own. And that is not the character of God. The reason that God the Father sent Jesus Christ to the cross was because that was the only way any single one of us was ever going to be saved. That was the only way any of us was going to be redeemed or made right with God was because of Jesus Christ. So our next principle that we see through this is that salvation through faith, it does not lead to living however we want, but it leads to a life that's lived for God by the power of the Holy Spirit. That this becomes the new purpose of our life, that if we put our trust and our faith in Jesus, that we're saying, God, I want to follow you, I want you to rescue me, then we're saying, the rest of my life, it's lived for you, God, by the power that you give me through the Holy Spirit. Because Paul, back in those verses, he says... Christ lives in me, in the present tense. He says, Christ lives in me. That it's not he's going to live in me. It's not I'm going to have a relationship with him. It's that he lives in me today. And so if you put your trust and your faith in Jesus, Christ lives in you by the power of the Holy Spirit. And God is transforming you and changing you to become more and more like Jesus Christ. And so what I hope that you see this morning is that we should obey, but our obedience, it comes from our salvation. It's not for salvation. That we obey because we've already been accepted, we've already been loved, we've already been saved because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And so out of gratitude, out of thankfulness, with joy, we say, God, I want to follow you. It's not, I'm going to do this so that you'll love me. I'm going to do this so that you accept me. I'm going to do this so that you will let me into your family. That is not what this is about. So what I want to leave you with this morning is that there's this picture of two sons or two daughters. And one son, he mows the lawn for his dad, and the reason he does it is because he loves his dad. 
and he sees how hard his dad works and he cares for him. And so he goes out there to mow the lawn because he doesn't want his dad to have to do it when he comes home at night. And so with joy and gratitude, he whistles and sings as he mows the lawn because he's so thankful that he gets to give back to his dad who's given him so much. But then there's this other son or this other daughter over here who they don't think their dad accepts them. And so they go to mow the lawn because they want this to be the thing that will push them over the top. And finally, dad will say, I'm proud. Finally, dad will say, I accept you. I welcome you. And so that whole time they mow, the whole cry of their heart is, is this enough? Is this enough for you to accept me? Is this enough for you to say that you're proud of me? And if you are trying to earn your salvation, then you spend your entire life asking the question, is this enough? And the terrifying thing is that you will get to heaven and find out it's not enough. Because Jesus Christ, because God has said it's only through Jesus Christ that we're made right. And again, I don't want that for anybody in this room. And so I hope, and my prayer this week has been, if this has been the way you've been trying to earn your acceptance by God, that you would give up. And you would say, I need your help, Jesus. Jesus, would you rescue me like you've rescued so many people before me that I am unable to save myself. I throw throw myself on your grace and mercy. Would you rescue me? That if you do that this morning, he would rescue you. And he would fill you with his Holy Spirit so that you truly can live out your life for him, striving to be a generous person, a kind person, a person who reflects Jesus well to the world around us. Let me pray. Father God, God, we thank you for Jesus. God, we thank you that we had no other way, that we were helpless and hopeless apart from him coming into the world. And he came and he rescued and he redeemed and he made a way possible for all people, for every man, woman, and child in this room and around the globe to be rescued and saved. God, would you give people eyes to see that their attempts to justify themselves will never be enough. God, would you help make us into a people that love and are kind out of the salvation we have, out of gratitude, that we don't do these things because we're trying to earn your approval or earn your acceptance. God, you make us people who don't add on to the gospel, but we embrace and love the gospel, that we guard over it and protect it so that more and more people who are lost and hurting and in need would give up trying to earn their own way and say, I need this Jesus too. God, we thank you that you have rescued and saved and redeemed. God, we pray this all in your son's name. Amen.